You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Welcome to this issue of Energy Insiders. Uh, my name is David Leach. I'm the owner of ITK. And in this uh, issue, uh, I interview Dylan McConnell from the um, Centre for Environmental and Energy Markets at University of New South Wales. Unfortunately, Giles is unavailable this week, so it's just me and Dylan. Dylan McConnell, Senior Researcher at uh, the long-named Collaboration on Energy and Environmental Markets, part of University of New South Wales. Thanks very much for uh, joining the Energy Insider podcast this week. Yeah, thanks, David, and uh, thanks, thanks for having me. Now, not all of our listeners may know about the Collaboration on Energy and Environmental Markets. Could you tell me a little bit about what it is and why it exists and what its goals are? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, same as it's it's colloquially known as, um, or historically used to be known as the Centre on Environmental and Energy Markets, has been a an interdisciplinary research group at University of New South Wales for over two decades now. It's one of the, the sort of oldest um, research groups that are looking into the the questions of the energy transition, and yeah, their sort of focus is on, um, uh, yeah, analysis and and monitoring and um, uh, sort of research around the the environmental markets and policy frameworks and uh, distributed energy resources in, in particular is a strong strength but yeah it's it's a a strong school uh, a, a strong group that's been researching this this space for um yeah two decades it's probably uh, 30 odd people working there um you know a handful of permanent staff uh, a lot of students uh, thesis students phd students it's a it's a very uh, active and dynamic uh, part of the research community. Yes, I'm always reminded of the old slogan of we but stand on the shoulders of those that uh, came before us. And certainly I think it's true that ideas that show up in uh, universities often end up in one form or another, uh, not always in the original author's uh, uh, plan uh, down in, in policy and stuff uh, down the track. Well, Dylan, uh, I mean, uh, energy policy uh, is once as always in the news at the moment, and we're making this transition at a reasonable pace. Uh, Let me start uh, off by talking a little bit about the capacity investment scheme. And I guess my standard question to you is, do you think that the scheme will make a difference? That's the that's the sixty four billion dollar question, I think, um, uh, and that's I think that's every, what everyone wants to know. Um, you know, obviously, we'd like to see it make a difference, and certainly there needs to be a bit of an acceleration in in terms of uh, getting more investment and more uh, build out of renewable energy occurring. Uh, but yeah, remains to be seen whether this is going to be the the uh, silver bullet and the or the the policy mechanism that that does it. Um, I, th- I think it's worth saying up front or at least from my perspective the the scheme itself is you know the most significant development um since the beginning of the NEM. Uh, it's the biggest single change i think that i can think of um and it's probably yeah where, what the long-term effects of this are you know we'll find out in 10 years time um 
but yeah, it's certainly a positive intervention. Um, I, I think, given where we are at and what you know, the sort of the, the challenge in front of us. But uh, yeah, I think whether or not it's going to work or not is is yeah open open to to. To be debated. Yep, and that's what we're doing. Uh, personally, I would have put the REC scheme uh, up there as uh, as well um, uh, in that in that major policy. Now, uh, let's just talk about whether, and of course, it won't be all that significant if it doesn't work. Um, uh, let's just talk about uh, what what impact do you think? First of all, do you think there will be strong demand for the auctions run by the federal government? Do you, you know, will it, will it? Uh, it's hard to hesitate where the prices are going to settle, but but do you think there'll be lots of projects bidding in? Uh, yeah, I don't think there'll be any shortage of of, of projects bidding in. Um, I guess there's a there's a big question mark around. Um, well, there's lots of lots of question marks and lots of uncertainty. So, um, but the the underlying I guess principles will be very attractive to the, the private sector, but there's the specific design points and, and how this will, um, you know, work in practice. I think that will, you know, still be causing a little bit of, uh, maybe not hesitation, but a bit of um, holding back in the short term as we work out the details and, and how this will actually affect project finance. But in terms of the underlying, uh, the point and the principles of de-risking investment in renewable energy and and providing a revenue floor and, and, and sort of this underwriting mechanism, I think there is very broad um, interest and and you know, private sector will very much be on, on on board with this. But in the very short term, I think yeah, that level of interest. So we're going to get the first auction in May, I think, uh, uh, but the results may not be announced uh, for some time after that. Who knows? Uh, but uh, let's assume some projects uh, uh, bid in and are awarded contracts. And I think um, for those people that can't remember back to last year, we're talking about 22 gigawatts of new, essentially wind and solar to be built, uh, to be awarded contracts over four years, uh, which comes to a little under six gigawatts a year. And some of that will be done through existing state schemes uh, like the New South Wales LTSs, but some of it will essentially be uh, federal um, guarantee of a floor price uh, for all uh, half hourly intervals, essentially. And uh, Dylan, I think the emerging consensus is that that um, will provide comfort to debt providers, but won't necessarily do anything for equity providers. That's the view before the scheme actually starts. Is that something you you think is likely? Look, that's something I, I, I don't, I haven't specifically heard or haven't, haven't got much insight on. Um, just one quick clarification. I think you said 22 gigawatts. Um, I think the, the full scheme will be 32 gigawatts. Oh yes, um, but nine of that is like uh, storage stuff. Oh, storage I, stuff I, I don't count that as new energy. That's a net right. consumer of energy. <laughs> sure, sure. Yes, and look, it's going to be interesting to see how how this will, you know, there's um there's there's the the 22 gigawatts of or 23 gigawatts I think of, of renewable energy and um, some of that yes will be through this this guaranteed national um, tender, but there's also a big chunk of that that will be the, through these renewable energy transformation agreements with the state governments and how they will play out and what sort of. Uh, deals get negotiated there between the state governments and the federal government will be, be interesting to watch, particularly with respect to uh, 
the planning regimes and the, the sort of challenges that are you know that we see there uh, and how that uh, will affect the, the the success of the schemes i think that's going to be an important one to watch as well and have you given any thought to how gentailers so i think it's uh, well known that agl and origin and energy australia have really done next to nothing to procure new wind and solar or renewable or energy to replace their coal generation. And I think this is particularly uh, apposite in the case of Origin, which is still announcing that it's closing Araring in 2025, but to the best of my knowledge, has done absolutely nothing to procure any replacement uh, for it so far. I mean, do you expect have you turned your mind to thinking about whether the large gentailers will will be major players in in in, in um, I guess taking on board the contracts that are necessary, PPAs that are necessary for people once they have won some of these CIS uh, auctions? Yeah, look, I think I think there's two two elements to this. Um, so one one is you know. On one level, they kind of don't have to, right? Like, um, I mean, it's maybe not a good commercial strategy for them, but um, th this underwriting does actually allow a lot of other third-party developers to access, um, you know, lower-cost finance and you know more secure financing than may otherwise have been possible and was previously essentially um, only possible if you were a vertically integrated gentailer. So, um, if they, I mean, if they don't do anything, they're at risk of being. Um, is cannibalized or, or um, you know, overtaken by third parties um, that, that's you know that's one um, pathway another pathway is that they may actually just acquire projects that, that um, uh, you know go through this process outside of that um, of course they might do it themselves at, at, you know and presumably they will be um, but yeah the fact that they are not um, you, know, you know certainly at origin I'm, I could be my information on this could be outdated but I'm pretty sure they've still only got a plan for four gigawatts of renewable energy by 2030 or you know and they've only got a yeah but i mean there's and there's no chance of that being built by 2025 right well or the end of no, 2025 no. like zero chance no that's right that's right and they have a very small fraction of stuff i think it's a handful of solar farms um that are at advanced stages of development or or committed so none of that is going to be i mean that, that's a separate question i guess the Araran question is a is a is another another big and um, important sort of policy discussion at the moment. Um, but yeah, in terms of the capacity investment scheme, I think they'll be forced to be participant either directly or indirectly because if, if they don't, they'll have their lunch eaten by others. Um, and yeah, as I said, they, they may they may end up acquiring projects that are uh, developed through that uh, later on down the track. Yeah, I see it uh, even more than that, that they actually have these retail commitments and obligations and they have to have capacity to supply them. And if uh, Origin closes Origin, closes a raring, it's got to uh, suddenly dig up, you know, uh, what is it, 15, 16 terawatt hours of energy. Uh, otherwise, its customers are going to be very unhappy. But let's move on a little bit uh, from, uh, let's assume that all these contracts are awarded. Uh, people have been running around like crazy for the last 12 months and saying, well, we can't get anything through the planning department and there won't be any transmission. Um, I'll be up front and say I'm far more optimistic uh, now than I was six or nine months ago about both of those things. But how are you thinking of those two big obstacles? Um, look, I'm, I'm less optimistic, um, or at least let's say, I, this is a bit of a, I think a throwback to 
podcast last week where uh, well, last time when you talked about you know climate action we're making progress but we're not making progress fast enough um so yes i, I think we are we are improving and, and things yeah things are getting better um on, on one level but on another level compared to what we need to do in terms of um you know emissions reductions or in, or in terms of um you know the the projected uh least cost cost pathway in the integrated system plan for example that these sort of changes are not nearly um, sort of fast enough or significant enough. Um, so it's a, yeah, I guess, a mixed bag. Um, I guess a good, you know, a good way to keep track of this is the um, AMA puts out a connection, a connection information uh, sort of of a summary every month um, to, that tracks how the connection processes are going. And yeah, there's a lot of applications and a lot of sort of good news on that level um, but then if you look at um, what's actually happening you know installed capacity the installed cumulative capacity up to December 2023 was um, yeah 28% less than for the same time the previous year so yeah yeah but that's looking backwards right we now I, I agree with that everyone agrees with that and that's why people makes people nervous but if I look forward let me just ask you uh, what I might call fund manager to analyst type questions right which you uh, you know, don't allow a lot of graininess. Do you think Humelink will get built uh, at the time that it's supposed to? Uh, no, I don't. But based on the what what the time it is supposed to, you know, what 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 do you think that is, uh, and what they say it is, and what um, you know? Uh, I seem to recall it has to. I, I need to remind myself, but I think it has to be uh, done by twenty twenty eight, doesn't it, or even a, a bit earlier. Oh. I think it was earlier than that. Um, 2026, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. On, on that timeline, on 2028, I could believe that. On 2026, no. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think that's uh, uh, going to happen on those timelines. Right. So that's going. And what about VNI West? Do you think that'll get built? That's the transmission line that runs, I think, for our listeners, uh, essentially from Victoria to, and, and will enable more uh, capacity to flow from New South Wales to Victoria and vice versa. Uh, how are you thinking about that? That's a, yeah, that's a that's obviously a very controversial project. And um, look, I think it probably will be built, but again, I don't think it'll be built on the timelines that um, you know are expected or or, or needed. Um, but yeah, I think it I think it will will happen. And, and Marinus Link is going to get built more or less on time. I mean, isn't it? I mean, there isn't really much environmental opposition to Marinus Link per se. The opposition is uh, on what it means uh, rather than the actual uh, environmental difficulties of building a cable under the ocean. I think one of the challenges with Marinus, which is yet to be resolved, is, is, is who pays for it. Um, and I don't mean, I mean that as separate to the question of who finances it. Um, you know, we, you know, we've got rewiring the nation and announcements from the federal government and um, and and the state governments to, to support the project. Um, but the question of cost recovery, how the, the costs are um, recovered from that project, is still uh, unresolved. Um, and and I think that's going to be a, a big challenge because uh, you know, as it currently stands, the costs would be basically recovered from Tasmanian and Victorian energy consumers. Um, that's the sort of current approach to, to building inter-regional inter um, transmission is the cost to recover on, you know, based on where the assets are and from, from those users. Um, that's obviously a non-starter for Tasmania, given the size of their, their um, uh, you know, 
population and energy consumer base. And also Victoria is not that keen on um, paying for it either. Um, for Victorian energy consumers. No, no, no are, one's ever keen on pain, are they? But go yes. on. Yes, and so, the, I mean, Tasmania is has been progressing this idea. I'm not sure where this is at, but they've been progressing this idea of a beneficiary pays model, so where the uh, the costs of the project are actually spread across the broader NEM. Um, and so, yeah, then Tasmania, instead of paying, you know, 50% of the cost, they may pay, you know, some small fraction. But then... Um, uh, Queensland would have to chip in some, and so would New South Wales, and so would South Australia. And as you can imagine, the Queensland Energy Minister or South Australian Energy Minister may not be too happy with that. So th- that negotiation or, or how that cost actually gets recovered, that that's a that's a big unknown question with Marinus Link as, as far as I'm concerned. Yep, um, yep, I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. And, and I, I want to come on to cost recovery because it goes to spilled energy as well. Uh, but uh, if I just stay on this theme of the obstacles so I, I i personally am quite relaxed about the transmission getting built in queensland uh and i think the transmission to the iran or rez will get built now and there's a question mark about the new england uh thing because the social license issues are bigger in new england than they are in most places in new south wales uh, but if I was to talk generally about planning departments and approvals for wind and solar, and you know, if we're talking about six gigawatts a year is basically the pace that we're talking about, do you think the planning departments are up to it? Look, I, it's it's not probably not something I can say with much authority, but based on historical um, experience today, um, I, I don't think so at the moment. I think there's been a lot of improvement in that. You know, particularly in New South Wales, but um, yeah, it's not something I have a lot of confidence or, or direct knowledge of. I'm afraid. Leaving aside planning departments and transmission, we've also got this kind of skills shortage, or and you know, but I don't worry about that too much. Showing how probably how naive I am, I kind of think that if there's a need for people, then the people will emerge one way or another. There are plenty of people overseas who can uh, design and build transmission lines and, and wind and solar plants and there's plenty of uh, software expertise here in Australia. I mean, do you see any other showstoppers to building six gigawatts a year? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do actually think the skills issue is a big issue. And, and yes, there are opportunities to, to import skills from overseas, um, except with the big caveat that the rest of the world is trying to do this at the same time. and particularly looking at the United States with their um, Inflation Reduction Act and, and the, the European Union with their, their new green industrial deal, um, we do actually have a pretty big sort of competition for this skill, uh, this skill labour. Um, so yes, historically, that's what we have done. And maybe we will have some success in that, but uh, it may be expensive and more challenging um, in, the, in the coming years because you know, the rest of the world is doing this at the exact same time as well. Yeah, um, that, that, you know, is, I, I always go back to like World War Two and uh, how you can increase like, uh, I don't know, bomber production in the United States over a period of time that um, or there'd be plenty of industries. No one knew anything about lithium mining a few years ago and all of a sudden we're all experts on it. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it, I think this is a matter of timing, and and in the long run, you're, I, I think you're right that these things will will, will um, you know adapt or evolve, and and 
you know, new capacity will, will free up. But in the short term, and, you know, particularly, you know, we are at a crunchy point of the transition. We have to do things ASAP, you know, right now. Um, time is not a luxury we have a lot of. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of both, I think. Yeah, I agree with that, Dylan. And you're a lot younger than me. You've got a lot more time than I have. I can tell you that much. But uh, uh, <laughs> if I uh, move on, and you, you you talked about who pays for Marinus Link. And I think there's a general uh, discussion here that's very interesting from a policy perspective, because everything I do uh, suggests to me that the portfolio is more important than any individual asset. That is, that the community is best served by having uh, a good portfolio of wind and solar and firming and that, you know, wind in Queensland is very complementary to wind in New South Wales. And if the state government in Queensland focused uh, on the benefits of having New South Wales wind and vice versa, uh, the, uh, you know, aluminium smelters and everyone else would be, would be better off. And nowhere does this become more evident than in the case of spilled energy and i mean no individual developer wants to own spilled energy because how do you get paid for it i'm sure it's a policy issue that you may have been thinking about yeah and actually this comes a little bit back to the capacity investment scheme question um to some degree as well um it's it's going to be interesting how how you um yeah, how negative pricing and and because what we're we're seeing a lot of now is um you know there's there's various types of curtailment there's um you know technical curtailment curtailment happening because of congestion or, or um, interventions from the market operator but there's also quite a lot of economic curtailment um which is you know curtailment happening because uh prices are low or negative um and how that interacts with the capacity investment scheme is a, is a i think interesting and question to sort of think about because uh, uh, short, shortly after the um, capacity investment scheme was announced, Minister Bowen uh, appeared on appeared on Insiders and said, um, you know, obviously we won't be subsidising negative prices or, or something to that effect. And I remember thinking at the time that's actually, I mean, that, that on one level sounds sensible, but on a one, uh, another level, given what we're actually seeing in the market and the dynamics, um, it, it's actually difficult to understand how that squares with um, de-risking and underwriting new RA investment um, because because negative prices are a huge risk. Yeah, someone has to pay for the negative price. I mean, yes. it, uh, the I think again for the uh, as I understand it, with current technology costs. And these do change, and that's an interesting topic itself. But in current technology costs, never nearly every high renewable percent system, like over eighty or ninety percent, has at least ten percent spilled energy in the lowest cost system, and someone has to pay for that spilled energy. Yeah, that's right. And look, on a system level, um, that's you know that's an efficient thing to happen for an individual project. That's that can be challenging because, well. That's uh, you know at a system level even um, you know ten percent is is high. I should point out we're getting pretty close to ten percent now. Um, I think in the last twelve months curtailment has been at a, across the NEM is uh, close to nine percent um, uh, of all, all renewable energy generation. Um, so we're not we're not that far off that by now, which is a, which is a higher amount than would have been expected um, by you know in in the integrated system plan or other planning. Um, 
But Dylan, that, that's partly at the moment um, because coal generation has, has, has a minimum level, isn't it? We can't, you know, if coal generation was able to go down to zero, we wouldn't have so much uh, spilled solar and wind, but we, we have to keep. So, I mean, in a sense, the reasons for the spilled energy will change over time, I think, maybe. Yeah, and look, there's there's quite a bit of um, variation and distribution in, in in these different forms of, of spilled energy up up in New South Wales and Queensland. It tends to be more constraint related and technical containment, and uh, you know they have less renewable energy up there, so maybe that makes sense. And then down down in Victoria and um, and South Australia, we tend to have more economic containment, you know, um, price based, um, you know, or, or economic. Um, curtailment. Um, so so there, there is a bit of variation there. Um, I should say it's, it's all very much um, uh, driven by, well, I guess it's driven by um, minimum coal generation levels, but it's it's also um, it's also very much got the pattern of, of solar, um, rooftop solar. Yeah, so, so I'd be interested to talk about uh, how contracts are evolving to manage this because but I suspect our listeners might, um, I'm not sure how entertained they'd be by that discussion, but I, I'm interested in that if, if you have some thoughts on it. But let's talk about the big issue that I think everyone understands is a, is a big focus. And that's um, like, there's a lot of different questions about this, but rooftop solar, essentially, it's not curtailment at the moment, doesn't happen by uh, rooftop solar producer choice. It happens because the system designer uh, may decide to switch it off. I, I mean, how should it all be integrated and what's your thinking on the policy uh, <laughs> for an easy question? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a difficult one. Um, I guess it's there's some diff differences with rooftop solar compared to utility Scott solar that need to be thought about in that. Um, well, so uh, utility solar, you know, that they... They connect to the, the bulk transmission network, and they are part of the open access sort of um, regime um, for transmission. Uh, and they are, I guess, well, um, well, you know, they, they know what they're getting into like, to some degree in terms of things like loss factors and congestion, and and or at least these are risks that they are aware of and, and need to, to manage. Rooftop solar, you know, is sold to consumers, you know, with a feed-in tariff, um, and they are not part of, you know, they don't have. They're not part of the open access kind of regime. They they have a quality, of, you know, a, they pay transmission use of system charges and distribution. They don't even know what the price is. They're totally unaware of it. Basically, at any given half hour. Yeah. So, but the to sort of come back to your question about curtailment, um, it, it it's a different, it's a more difficult question because um, you know they're making decisions and and investing, putting their own money into these systems based on a one set of uh, you know a set of rules and and information um that you know does is different to the utility scale um so it, it is on the one level you can look at it and say it's unfair that we don't you know if you're a utility solar farm it's like how come we don't um curtail you, you know rooftop solar or you know whatever the case may be but if you're on another level it's like well there's a whole lot of other things that we don't um <laughs> that they they uh do and don't do as well so it's a it's a bit of an unfair um yeah it's a difficult decision it's a, and i the, the, there's obviously not going to be any an answer that satisfies everyone i've always thought rightly or wrongly that more household or community uh storage uh 
would would help with the problem. But I think it's also fair to say, as someone pointed out to me, and I keep repeating that no matter how much storage we build, it's almost certain we'll build more solar of one sort or another for the next few years. So we can be absolutely guaranteed pretty much that this problem is going to get worse before it gets better, can't we? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I think that's that's part of the solution. But um, uh, yeah, as you say, I think we're, we're going to keep building solar and, and there's, a lot of, there's still a lot of um, roof space out there that hasn't been used and there's a lot of other... Um, uh, you know, parts of the system, you know, not non-household users that will, will expand into into this space um, in the, the short to medium term. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of this comes back to thinking about how we actually use electricity um, more cleverly um, or smartly or efficiently, however you want to think about it, uh, you know, changing our actual um, demand. Uh, yeah, demand, um, you know, flexible demand, uh, whatever, however you want to think about it. There's so many opportunities to do things on the demand side that, you know, um, on one level we've been talking about for over a decade, on another level, um, yeah, we haven't done anything, um, on another level, those op opportunities are still there and we, we should still <laughs> pursue them um, for a whole range of reasons. They are, they've proven to be difficult, um, but th there's a lot of op um, value, I think. That's to right. Be so Dylan, so two, well, question one is, firstly, would you agree that markets can find solutions and that if we've got a whole lot of curtailment and zero and negative prices in the middle of the day, that somehow or other, uh, the um, people will find a way to take advantage of that? Do, do you think that's a fair statement? Look, I think maybe they could if they were given the opportunity to, um, but this this also comes back to the question of um, of timelines and you know the speed at which we need to do things, um, and to some extent it's a bit of a, a you know if you think about the capacity investment scheme for example, um, this is very much this is one of the reasons I think it is such a significant um, uh, development for for the NEM is this is the, you know this is a a turn toward much more towards a centrally planned system um, where, where you know investment signals are not the dominant sorry um, you know electricity prices and markets are not the dominant driver of investment decisions um, no that's, we've seen, that's right we've seen this happen you know, across multiple states and different um, you know different interventions over the last five or six years but the capacity investment scheme is, a, is another sort of quite strong articulation of that that, that move um yeah so, and we should uh, give chris bowen i at least i want to uh, uh give him the credit for doing his best to make bring the states uh, the nem back together as something by making this a federal scheme but dylan we never you never actually answered the question <laughs> uh, of what to do who should pay for this spilled energy how is it going to get paid for in your opinion what's the what's the uh, academic thinking on this uh, look, yeah, that's that's a contentious question. I guess my, my default is that basically it, it, it's a it's a risk allocation question. Um, uh, you know, we should be putting these costs and on onto the the, the, the participants or the the, um, the developers or the the people most um, most able to manage them, and that is renewable. That is most that is renewable energy developers. Um, so it, on a yeah, that's obviously probably an unpopular position for a renewable energy developer, but um, 
like you know, if you're thinking about this again, if you're thinking about this from this this sort of um, a market and a price kind of um, uh, you know framework, or, or then then putting those costs onto the people that can manage those risks is the the obvious and correct solution in my view. Um, however, yeah, as as also I pointed to, we're moving away from that. We're talking about um, you know you know. Governments are essentially deciding the timing and location of, of a lot of um, of new new investments. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's got its own risks and benefits. Um, but in that framework, then we do need to have a, a, a think about who should pay and where those costs should be allocated um, to ensure that yeah we don't end up um, you know, overbuilding or building things in the wrong place or, or you know. Um, you know, white elephants and all the other risks that come with this. Um, but yeah, I, I think the price-based approach could work and the market-based approach could work in the long run if we didn't have to worry about time. Um, you know, we've yep, got- and we've moved beyond that. And, and I guess so the spilled energy uh, risk, I suppose, will really fall on the government the way if the, in, under the CIS because new projects will have a minimum price. Uh, and and perhaps that's where it should be because it is for everyone's benefit. Dylan, uh, we're running out of time. I just wanted to cover a little bit. Uh, there isn't been that much news this early in the year that's quite specific other than the uh, vehicle emissions standard, which uh, maybe I'll cover a bit later in a different uh, issue. So I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions that I'm going to, uh, that um, uh, you won't know the answer to, but I'm going to ask them anyway. And I'm going to ask uh, some other guests that we have on. Since you're the first to get asked uh, this question, uh, yours is the toughest, but uh, how many uh, gigawatts of new utility wind and solar do you think will actually get to final investment decision in calendar 2024? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> Uh, ooh, good question. Um, I guess I have a recency bias, um, and I'd probably say in the vicinity of um, four to five gigawatts. Yeah, so that'd be pretty good, right? Yes, I think in myself, I'd be quite. Uh, we, we need six, but if we got five, I'd be perfectly happy. Well, like, uh, and um, do you think uh, spot electricity prices? Let me think uh, uh, across the NEM, and I always think of individual states, will be higher in calendar 2024 than they were in calendar 2023 or lower as a year-long average? It's a year-long average, I'd say lower, but probably not as not significantly lower. Um, I guess, yeah, I mean, there's a bit of, there's a lot of, there's a big divergence, as, as you are no doubt aware, between um, the North states and the South states. Um, but you know we have we have substantially higher prices in, in New South Wales and, and Queensland the spot prices that is than um, Victoria and South Australia and Tasmania. Um, I, I think that's going to persist. And but I do think they will on you know the sort of mean or the, the base load um, the the average price will be generally lower. Um, there will be I think I mean we're seeing this in Queensland and New South Wales right now there's quite a bit of volatility um, that's the big swing factor because that can have a big impact on the, the underlying price um, and I that that could be I mean we've got another month and a half ish two months of the sort of summer season to the extent that it goes into March that will that will um, that will be interesting to watch and also yeah early next summer um, could, could drive things but I, I would expect them to be lower but not 
It's been much softer for demand, I think, and uh, spot pricing risk than was anticipated. But that's markets for you. That's, Dylan, what... Just on, on that, that's that's kind of true uh, on the, the demand. That's true, if, uh, and it's true from a market perspective if you're ignoring rooftop solar. Um, if you're actually looking at, if you do take into account the the, the self-consumption or the pine meter consumption um, from, from rooftop solar, demand is actually growing quite you know, underlying consumption is actually is actually grown. Uh, you know, I was looking at the quarter four numbers earlier this year, and the quarter four to quarter four quarter four to quarter four change in energy consumption, including the rooftop solar, was actually quite positive and significant. Um, I don't know if that's there's some more fundamental reason for that, or if it's the early stages of electrification or some other thing. Um, but actually, demand as measured by you know gigawatt yeah, yeah. hours is, is actually increased for the first time. And of course, we saw, saw uh, all records in Queensland that were probably, I can't remember, nearly 10% higher than previous records right. in terms of half hourly demand. That was peak demand, but actually looking at the, I think the underlying, underlying energy. energy consumption for Queensland, it's about 7.5% higher for, um, for January than it was last January. Um, so. Yeah, and I, I, have to, I, I, you're right that there's a lot of uh, potential. Ex- anything that uh, happens, there'll always be explanations for it afterwards. <laughs> That's the nature of life, the cynic in me says. But uh, I do think we've had these high dew points, which must be absolutely pushing the air conditioning demand uh, through the roof. But it's exactly what you'd expect, and we are getting these early stages of electrification. But just. Uh, uh, my final question is, someone else suggested to me with a lot of knowledge of markets that he thinks that, that Victorian electricity prices are going to be structurally low for, you know, the next, uh, even beyond the closure of your lawn. Uh, I'm less convinced about that. And I was just wondering if you had any uh, brief brief thoughts about it. Look, I could uh, get brief off the top of the head thoughts. I, I would believe that. Um, I, I think there's good reasons that it, it would be structurally low because of, I mean, some of these transmission issues, because of its low cost base of brown coal, because of its you know, 40-odd percent renewable energy, um, I can imagine spot prices in Victoria being low for, for quite a long time and, and lower than the, the other states. That's very interesting. Well, Dylan McConnell from Seam, it's been a pleasure having you on Episode 2 of Energy Insiders for 2024. No worries. Thanks for having me, Dave. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.